The reading for this morning is from Luke 9, verse 18 to 27. Just in case you need a Bible, there are still Bibles on the back table. Once when Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowds they say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and some still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. Then he said to them, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I will tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Well, if you'd like to keep that passage open, um, we'll look at that together. We're going to look at uh, three, uh, three times in the New Testament where Peter contradicts Jesus. We know that Peter denied Jesus three times. We know that Jesus three times said to him, do you love me, and recommissioned him. But you may not have realized, perhaps you have seen this before, but uh, three times Peter has the nerve to contradict Jesus. He says, no, Lord. Which is a stupid thing to say when you think about it, isn't it? If he's Lord, you don't say no to him. But Peter did three times. And we're going to look at, at, um, today at uh, the first of those occasions when Peter really says no to the cross, as we'll see. There's a cross for Jesus and there's a cross for you and I if we want to follow him. And Peter doesn't like that very much. Uh, and he says no. So let's look at this passage. Um, in, actually, he doesn't say no in, in, in this passage in Luke, but in Matthew he does. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this, this event. So if you've got that passage in front of you, um, apparently... Uh, so I'm told Charlie Chaplin once entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest in Monte Carlo, and he came third. <laughs> now that's bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> because uh, how could he not look like himself? Something like that is happening here. It's a kind of almost like an, uh, uh, a police lineup. It's like a, uh, and I, you know, um, Jesus says to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? And clearly, public opinion is divided. Some say John the Baptist, uh, beheaded by Herod, and from all accounts, Herod was uh, really uh, disturbed about that, and uh, 
it seems like Herod thought that uh, Jesus, somehow or other, was John the Baptist come back to haunt him. Uh, how that works, I don't know. Uh, they, they believed in the transmigration of souls in those days. And uh, maybe he thought that somehow John the Baptist had got into this person, Jesus, and was come back to haunt him. It's a guilty conscience speaking on the part of Herod, I think. Others said Elijah, Elijah, the only Old Testament prophet uh, who never died, taken up in a fiery chariot. And the Jews believed that Elijah would come back again uh, before uh, the Messiah showed up. And some people thought, well, maybe this is Elijah. Or one of the prophets. Just like today, people um, like to speculate about Jesus and voice their often uninformed opinions about him. But what about you, Jesus says? Who do you say that I am? You see, that's, that's personal, isn't it? He's not asking them to voice their opinion now. He's asking them to commit themselves. See, if I were to ask you, uh, who did Australia vote for at the last election? It wasn't very long ago, so you probably remember. It was, it won't be easy under Albanese, I know, it was Anthony Albanese and the Labour Party. But if I were to ask you, and you, who did you vote for? Well, that's a different question, isn't it? You might not want to tell me that. It's a much more personal question. It's much more intrusive. You might be quite happy to talk about politics in general terms and voice your opinion about the Labour Party or the Liberal Party, but if I ask you who did you vote for, then you'd have to reveal your own convictions or lack of convictions. It's a very much more intrusive, personal question, isn't it? And your, and, and your answer to that question reveals something about you. And that's what Jesus is after here with his disciples. That's what Jesus is after here this morning with you as I speak to you from the word. Never mind the gossip on the street. Never mind all those documentary, mockumentary programs on SBS. Never mind public opinion. Never mind what others are saying. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? It's, it's, a, bit, it's a rather strange question, isn't it, when you come to think of it? As it you know, it's a rather strange question coming as it does three years down the track. Imagine if you've been to uni uh, for three years. Imagine, uh, I know they don't, it's a long time since I was at uni, but imagine... Uh, you, you, you've been at uni for three years. Sometimes people go for five years, seven years, ten years these days, don't they? Take time off in between. But imagine you've been there, say, for three years, and then you do your finals. I don't think people do their finals anymore. I think you get assessed, don't you, all throughout, throughout the course. But you, you come to your final exam, and uh, there's only one question on the paper set by your, your, your senior lecturer. And this is the question, who do you think I am? Well, you'd think he's had a nervous breakdown, wouldn't you? <laughs> now, I know you're looking for a pastor here, and, and we're praying with you that, that uh, the Lord will provide you with an under-shepherd here. Imagine now uh, that you, you, you find the right guy, and, he, and uh, the time comes for his induction, and he stands up before you as your new pastor, and he says, 
Now, I want you to know that after, after, after three years of my ministry, I want you to be able to tell me who I am. You'd sack the selection committee, wouldn't you? And yet here is Jesus. Jesus has spent three years with these men preparing to answer this one question. Who do you say that I am? See, anyone else asking a question like that would lose all credibility, but not Jesus. Every other, this is what distinguishes Jesus from every other religious leader and teacher. See, every other religious figure has to point away from themselves if they're going to have any credibility. I know some of them are full of themselves. We've seen that, haven't we? But to have any kind of hearing, to have any kind of credibility, they have to point away from themselves. They, they are self-effacing if they're to have any kind of impact. But Jesus, he's so different. He's self-advancing. They can only say, well, that's the truth. Follow that. He says, I'm the truth. Follow me. So what's your answer going to be to this question? Where do you stand? I want you to think about this as, as we look at this passage this morning. Where do you stand in relation to Jesus? See, if you're not yet a Christian, this is a question that you must find an answer to. And you're in the right place because this is a church that wants to give you that answer. And there are all sorts of ways that that can happen. There's Christianity explained. There's hope explained. Just talk to someone afterwards if you really want to find out about Jesus. And someone will come alongside you and, and help, you, help you find the answer to that question. But even if you've been a Christian for many years, it's still a question for you too, isn't it? In the, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, there's a scene where Lucy says to Aslan, Aslan, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, Aslan says to her. Not because, not because you're bigger, asks Lucy. No, says Aslan. Every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. Isn't that how it is? Isn't that how it should be, Christian? Let me ask you, are you growing in your appreciation who Jesus is? As you grow older, is he growing bigger? Is he bigger now than he was when you first believed? Who do you say that I am? You notice how Peter answers that question in verse 20. He, he and he, you know, Peter is the kind of, he's speaking for all of them. He's the spokesman for the 12. You are the Christ, he says. You are the Messiah. God's long-promised Messiah. That's what Christ means. Of course, it's not his surname, because we all know that, don't we? It's his title. You are the Messiah, God's king, God's universal ruler, who's going to bring in God's everlasting kingdom. You're not a prophet. You're the subject of prophecy. You're the one to whom all the prophets have pointed. You're the one who will uh, turn the tables on Satan who will crush the serpent's head. He will bruise your heel, but with that bruised heel of your crucified humanity, you'll stamp on his head. You're the seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head. You're the seed of Abraham who will bring blessing to the whole world. You're the son of David 
who will destroy all the ancient enemies of the human race and reign forever. You are the Christ. That's Peter's answer. It's a great confession, isn't it? Revealed to him from heaven, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on that. It's a great confession. In fact, it, it's, it's what we must all confess. It's just very simple, isn't it? Jesus is Christ. Jesus Christ. Those two words. To be able to say Jesus, you know, this man from Nazareth is Christ. He's Lord. It's a great confession. But it's followed by great confusion. Did you notice that? Look at verse 21. Jesus, we're told, strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Why? Well, there's all sorts of reasons why. The theologians talk about the messianic secret, but let me just say this. The reason why is because they've only half understood the gospel, haven't they? They knew who he was now. The Holy Spirit had revealed that through Peter. He's the Christ of God. They've got that right. But they don't really know yet why he's come and what he's going to do. And so Jesus introduces the cross into the conversation, doesn't he? Look at verse 22. And there's a, a, a distinct change of key here from the major to the minor. Like, like the Tasmanian weather. One minute the sun is shining. The next minute a cold front is approaching. And it becomes distinctly chilly here, doesn't it? Look what he says. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And on the third day be raised to life. And in verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. See, if Jesus is who Peter says he is, then the two things must happen. He must die and you must die. There's a cross for Jesus and there's a cross for those of us who want to be his followers. So let's just look at that now. And, and let me speak to you, first of all, about Christ and his cross. We've sanitized the cross, haven't we? we we've removed the blood and the gore. We've polished it up. and made it uh, into a logo, or, or worse still, a piece of jewelry. But this is a bloody execution. A violent Cruel death, so cruel, so violent that Roman citizens weren't allowed even to watch it. The worst possible kind of death. As Lord MacLeod of Iona famously said, Jesus died on a rough wooden cross between two thieves, not in a cathedral between two candlesticks. There's something shocking and horrific about this. The Son of Man, this is Daniel's Son of Man, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And that's too much for Peter. Matthew tells us in his account that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he says. This shall never happen to you. It's the first of three occasions when Peter contradicts Jesus. We look at the other two in the next two talks. Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. 
I suspect when Peter said that, it was as much to save his own skin as it was uh, to protect Jesus. Peter wanted to take the cross out of Christianity. And many people are just like Peter. John Stott says, the voice of Peter is louder in today's church than the voice of Jesus. So many people today want a Christianity without the cross. But that's not possible. It's just not possible. There is no Christianity without the cross. One day soon, very soon, I think, Prince Charles will become King of England. I'm Welsh, I'm not too happy about that idea. But one day soon, Prince Charles will be on the throne. He'll be King of England. And they'll take him to Westminster Abbey, Westminster Abbey to be crowned, not to Pentonville Prison to be executed. But for Jesus, his crucifixion is his coronation. Remember when Pilate says to him at his trial, are you, are you, are you a king? They say that you're a king. King of the, are, you, are you a king? And Jesus said, well, you say so, but my kingdom is not of this world. And within hours, they nailed him to a tree and rammed a crown of thorns on his head so that the blood was streaming down his face. And that crown of thorns became his royal diadem. They wrapped a purple robe around his lacerated back. They put a fragile reed into his hand and, and mocked him. But that fragile reed is the scepter of his power. They, they fastened him to a rough wooden cross. And that cross is the throne from which he rules the world. His crucifixion is his coronation. You see, God's kingdom comes not with pomp and circumstance, not by military might or political maneuvering, but through the death of Jesus, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And there's a must about it. Not a maybe or a might be, but a must. This is the way it must happen. Holman Hunt has a very famous painting of Jesus as a boy in the carpenter's shop, resting in the doorway with the sun behind him, casting the shadow of a cross across the floor in front of him. And there's a great gospel message in that. I don't know whether Holman Hunt was a Christian or not, but he understood something that's really very profound. And see, the cross... The cross is no, no accident of history. There's a must about it. It has always been there in, in, in the consciousness of Jesus. When, they, when the, the wise men brought the myrrh as a gift for him. Myrrh is what you use when you, when you bury someone. When, when Simeon uh, prophesied that uh, a sword will pierce your soul, when Simeon said that to Mary, because this child will be for the rising and, 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 and falling of many, he was prophesying the cross. At the age of 12, when Jesus stood in the temple and talked with the doctors of the law, imagine a little 12-year-old standing there in this massive building, the temple, and talking to the theologians of his day. What did he talk about? His parents come looking for him. They, they wonder where he's gone. And they find him eventually there in the temple, talking with the theologians. And, and he says to them, you know, 
didn't you realize that, that, that I must be about my father's business at the age of 12? You know, think of that Mark Twain quote. That's a great quote, isn't it? The day of your birth and the day when you find out what you were born for. Jesus always knew what he was born for. Standing there in, in the temple where the, the animals were sacrificed talking with the, the, the theologians, and he says to his parents, didn't you realize? I must be about my father's business. He knew what that business was. He knew that he must come and lay down his life to make atonement for the sins of his people. In Gethsemane, wrestling in Gethsemane, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The shadow of the cross is there right throughout his life. And the shadow of the cross is there on every page of the Old Testament, isn't it? From the very beginning. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. It must be so. It's revealed there that in the, in the pages of, of Scripture that Jesus must die. He is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It, it's, it's, it's there on every page of the Old Testament. And it's rooted in the character of God. This must. How can God be just and at the same time the justifier of the ungodly? How can God be holy and yet loving and merciful to the likes of us? There's no other way. Jesus must die. See, if there was any other way, don't you think God would have found it? For God's kingdom to come, for Jesus to set up his rule in your life, for, for sinners to be saved, sinners like you and I, God's enemies, Jesus must die. See, the Jews believed that, um, this is why this was so difficult for Peter, the Jews believed that the Messiah, they were expecting the Messiah to come, and they, they believed that when the Messiah was to come, he would inflict suffering on his enemies. No one expected him to take that suffering upon himself. No one expected him to take that suffering upon himself, the suffering that you and I deserve, because we are God's enemies, aren't we? And he took it upon himself on the cross. Have you understood that? See, is, let me ask you, is the cross a mystery to you? Or is it a must? Are you one of these people who comes to church and they've got the Lord's Supper and you're wondering, well, what's this all about? Is the cross a mystery? Or is it a must? For God's kingdom to come into your life, for you and I, sinners that we are, to enter into that, that kingdom, it's over his dead body. Jesus must die. If you haven't understood that, you haven't understood the gospel. Jesus must die. But then, so too must you. Look at verse 23. I've spoken to you about Christ and his cross. Now let me speak to you about you and your cross. Because there's a cross for you too. There's a, and there's a must about it as well, isn't there? See what he says? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. 
must. It's not an optional. It's not optional. It's not an optional extra for super keen Christians. It's not just for missionaries and martyrs. It's for all of us. It's a must for all would-be followers of Jesus. Whoever wants to be my disciple, don't you want to be a follower of Jesus? Well, you must then take up your cross to follow him. Someone has called that the least manipulative invitation ever given. <laughs> it's definitely not a crowd pleaser, is it? Take up your cross and follow. If you saw a man carrying a cross, you knew he wasn't coming back. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You've got to say goodbye to your old life. You're not going back to that. If you saw a man carrying a cross, you knew he wasn't coming back. The cross was certain death. And Jesus says, if you want to be a follower of mine, then you're going to have to die. You're going to have to die to yourself. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said in, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, you know, he's critiquing the easy believism of his day. And, wow, that's rife nowadays, isn't it? He, talk, he calls it cheap grace. And he says famously, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die. You'll have to die to yourself. You'll have to give up your small ambitions and plans for the future. Now, why would anybody want to do that? Yeah, I think the big mistake we make, I think, in, in a lot of churches today is that we want to dumb that down, don't we? We want to make Christianity so, you know, lovely and welcoming and attractive. We, we, we dumb that down. Why would anybody want to die to themselves? We, I thought the world revolved around me. <laughs> Why do I have to give up all my plans and follow Jesus and do his will? Well, let me give you three reasons. And, and these are the three reasons that Jesus gives us here in this passage. First reason is this. It's the only way you're going to save your life. Look what he says in verse 24. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Paradoxically, you see, you save your life by losing it. Do you know the story of um, Blondin, the famous acrobat who used to, you know, tightrope walk over Niagara Falls? Uh, in, 19, in 1859, he, he promised to pay $1,000 to anyone willing to let them, him carry them across Niagara Falls on his back. $1,000 in 1859 was a huge amount of money. Apparently, 100,000 people turned up to watch. But none of them would volunteer. <laughs> he, he, uh, he carried a sack on his head. He, he rode a bike across the tightrope. He took a stove in a wheelbarrow and halfway across cooked an omelet. And then he came back and he said, do, do you believe I could carry you across? And they all said, oh, yes, yes. Well, who's going first? <laughs> And no one put up their hand. And, and poor old Harry, who was his manager, his long-suffering manager, who was scared of heights, <laughs> Harry had to do it. <laughs> he persuaded him. And halfway across, they began to wobble. And um, Blondin was heard to shout out to, to Harry, Harry, till I clear this place, you've got to trust me. 
You've got to become part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, you sway with me. Don't attempt to try and counterbalance. Don't attempt to balance yourself or we'll both fall to our deaths. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you surrender yourself to me, you will be safe. That's what Jesus is calling, calling for here. That's what Jesus wants you to do to follow him. That's what faith is. It's surrendering yourself to him. Trust him. Stop living independently of him. Cling to him for dear life. Are you doing that? That's faith. It's not something that happens in a meeting when you first become a Christian. It's what happens every day, isn't it? Clinging to him for dear life. Refusing to live independently. Trusting him. Surrendering yourself to him. Are you doing that? Second reason he gives is in verse 25. And now look at you, there's a kind of note of pleading in this, isn't he? He's pleading with them. Look at verse 25. What good is it, he says, for someone to gain the whole world and yet to lose or forfeit their own souls, their very self? Now, surely that's a figure of speech, isn't it? It has to be. How can anyone gain the whole world? Not even Elon Musk can do that. Someone says the reason he wants to go out of the world is because he's got eight kids. He wants to get away from them. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure if that's true or not. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> it just came into my head. <laughs> but, you know, for someone to be able to gain the whole world, that, surely that has to be a figure of speech. I mean, there have been many who've tried and failed. And yet there is a sense in which we all live in our own little world, don't we? Gardeners have, you go to the news agents, you'll see gardeners have gardening world. Women have women's realm. At least they used to, I think. My, my, my mother used to read Women's Realm. When I was growing up, there was the world of sport on TV every Saturday afternoon. Channel 9 has the worldwide world of sport. What world do you live in? What world do you inhabit? What do you live for? What if you were to be able to gain that whole world, everything you've ever dreamed of doing or being, only to lose your soul? What's the point of that? What profit is there in that, you see? You, see, you don't lose your soul, you see, you don't lose your soul like you, like you lose your car keys. You just misplace them. Can't remember where you put them. No, that's not it. To lose your soul is a process. And, and I think what Jesus is saying here is this. You can't actually gain the world, if that's what you're trying to do in, in your life, without in the process losing your own soul. Worldliness, whatever form it takes, is soul-destroying, isn't it? Haven't we seen that with people? Have you noticed that in your own life? In 1965, uh, Somerset Maugham, one of the world's most famous living authors then, was 91 years of age. This was back in, in uh, 1965. Shortly before he died, his nephew, Robin Maugham, visited him at his uh, villa on the French Riviera. 
And he describes that visit in an article that he wrote for the, the London Times on April the 9th, 1978. Listen to what he says, describing that visit to Somerset Maughan, his uncle. He says, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and, and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I, I remembered that that villa itself and the wonderful views of the Mediterranean was worth millions. He had 11 servants including his cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires. He dined on silver plates, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henri, his footman. But it no longer meant anything to him. That afternoon, I found him in the library, peering through his spectacles at a large print Bible. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. I've been reading that Bible you gave me, he said. And I come across this verse which used to hang on my bedroom wall as a child. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Of course, it's a load of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. That evening in the drawing room after dinner, he flung himself down on the sofa. Robin, he said, I'm so tired. He gave a gulp and buried his head in his hands. I've been a failure the whole way through my life. I've made mistake after mistake. I've made a hash of everything. I tried to comfort him. You're the most famous writer alive. Surely that must count for something. I wish I'd never written a single word, he said. It's brought me nothing but misery. Everyone who's got to know me well has ended up hating me. My whole life has been a failure. And now it's too late to change. It's too late. He looked up and his grip tightened on my hands. He was staring towards the floor. His face was contorted with fear. He was trembling violently. He stared, ashen-faced, ahead of him. Suddenly he began to shriek. Go away, he cried. Go away. I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. His high-pitched, terror-struck voice seemed to echo from wall to wall. I looked around, but the room was empty. There's no one here, I said. And he began to gasp hysterically. Do you get the point? See, Somerset Maughan was one of the most famous and fated men of his generation. He had everything. He had it all. But when the time came, when it was time for the reckoning, he found that his life was empty and worthless. He was afraid, afraid to die. His idols had deserted him. That's reason number two. You can't gain the world without losing your soul. And what is there in this world worth losing your soul for? Think about it. What, what are your idols? What are you chasing after? What are you controlled by? What are you investing in? Your health? Well, your health's going to fail eventually, isn't it? Your looks, well, your looks will fade. Your money, you can't take that with you. There are no pockets in shrouds. Your idols, they're all going to desert you in the end. What will it profit you? If you've gained your world, the world that you inhabit, and everything in it, all the things you've ever wanted, only in the process to lose your soul. And here's the third reason to take up your cross, to die to yourself, and to follow Jesus. Look at verse 26. Consider the future. 
your future. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Do you know that the next thing to happen on God's agenda is for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back in his glory? with all the glory of his holy angels. Remember when Daniel saw one angel, he fell to the ground dead. Imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back with all his holy angels. What a day that's going to be. See, now, now you know, we're often being told this, we're the wrong side of history, we Christians, aren't we? Now, nobody wants to know him now, do they? The only time you ever hear the name Jesus is as a swear word. People don't even know who they're talking about. Nobody wants to know him now, but every, everybody will want to know him then. Or be known by him. That's the point. See, one of the problems of being a celebrity, a famous person, is everybody, think they, everybody thinks um, they know you. Take uh, Nick uh, Kyrgios, for example, at the moment. He's pretty up there in, in, the, uh, in the news, isn't he? He's on Facebook. He tweets. He twitters. <laughs> Twitters endlessly, doesn't he? You could, you, could be, you could be his Facebook friend. You can find all about him, all the things he wants to share with you on Facebook. You could be his Facebook friend. But if you were to, turn, if you were to front up to Wimbledon tonight or tomorrow, he's likely to say to you, depart from me, I never knew you, or words to that effect. <laughs> isn't he? See, because the issue is not, do you know the issue is not, do you know Jesus? You might think that you do know Jesus. The issue is not, do you know Jesus, but does Jesus know you? In the Sermon on the Mount, remember what Jesus says? He warns us that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says that. It's e words are easy to say. You can come to church and you can, you can hear the songs and you can talk to other Christians and, and you, you can talk the talk yourself. But it's not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, he says. It's at a funeral on Friday, 90-year-old lady who served the Lord all her life. She was a missionary in France for 25 years. She was a part of the ministry team at Cornerstone when we planted Cornerstone. She was part of the core group of Mount Stuart that came out of Cornerstone to plant another church. And uh, those words that she now hears, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Those words were well, well spoken on Friday at that funeral. Are those the words you're going to hear? Not well said. We could all talk better than we do, can't we? Well said. You, you're a Calvinist, are you? And you can reel off the five points of Calvinism. Well said. No, Jesus isn't going to say that. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name. And then I will announce to him, depart to them, depart from me. I never knew you. You thought you knew me. You sang the songs. You mixed with Christians. You looked like a Christian. You said the right things. You thought you knew me, but I never knew you. See, what matters is not, what matters is not whether or not you think you know Jesus, but does he know you? So why follow Jesus? See, openly identifying with Jesus is costly. 
It's more and more costly now to come out as a Christian, isn't it? It didn't used to be very much for us to say that we were Christians. But now the culture is getting more and more against us. And it's, uh, to come out as a Christian nowadays is a bit more challenging. You have to die a thousand deaths sometimes to say that you're a Christian, don't you? Why would you want to do that? Why, why identify yourself as a follower of Jesus? Why follow him? Why, why choose to be a loser in the eyes of the world? Because in the end, do you see what it says there in verse 26? In the end, loser takes all. <laughs> this one that the world has written off is coming back. And it's going to be the greatest, the biggest comeback ever. He'll return with his father's glory and all his holy angels. Then who will be on the wrong side of history? Not you, if you're a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold the glory of our Savior and to respond to him in faith, embracing the claims that he made about himself. We ask that you'd open our eyes by the Spirit to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.